0: Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Lord, King of the universe, we come to you as your church. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this church that we can all assemble here as your body together freely. And we get to experience true worship in spirit and in truth that you've afforded us by the blood of your son in this new covenant. That we can draw near to you. You are not far away. You are not distant. We do not have to go up to heaven to bring you down to us. You are here in our hearts. You are here in the words that we speak. You are here among us. And so, Lord, as that song said, um, let there be only Jesus, more and more of Jesus, more of Christ. Let us diminish. Let us become nothing but let you fill us. Let Christ fill us. Let Christ be all in all. Christ all in all in me. Christ all in all in our church here. Let us all be filled with the person of Christ. Let us be propelled by the spirit of Christ. You have made us the very body of your son Jesus. Your very body here on earth. Your very body that ministers to itself. Christ still ministers and serves his church even today today through his church, through his body, through the members of his body, through us, through this worship that we had, through the preaching of your word. So Christ, you great servant of all, come and minister to us, minister to your bride. Would you come here and wash our feet today? Would you cleanse us? Would you touch our hearts, purify our hearts of every unclean thing? Baptize us afresh in your spirit. Cleanse our hands of every unclean thing, the evil deeds that we partake in. Let us be clean as you have made us. You have washed us entirely by your spirit, by the blood. So wash our feet. Do a new work in us, Lord. Minister to us, serve us. Oh Lord, how we long to be served by you. There's nothing greater than to be served by you. Peter said, don't wash my feet, but Lord, we come to you and we say, wash our feet. Come and minister to us today through the preaching of your word, through everything that we do here and say, and we pray all this in the name and power and authority of your Son, Jesus the Christ, amen, amen. So if you've been a part of this series that we've been in, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been looking at the kingdom of God, and we've been learning all about the nature of the kingdom of God right? What is the kingdom of heaven? What's it like? What defines it? What defines its citizens, the people who are part of this kingdom, the people who are not a part of this kingdom, but are the enemies of this kingdom? And what defines the king of this kingdom? Who is the king of this kingdom? It is Jesus. And last week, we began to see kind of just how this is So different than any other kingdom, any other nation that has ever existed, right? In this kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And we've been kind of seeing this idea pop up over and over again, the last few chapters that we've been exploring, and I think that it really climaxes in this passage and in the next passage that we're going to be looking at more next week. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But what we see here is a picture of Jesus as servant, as the greatest servant, and therefore the greatest in his kingdom. So let's read the passage and then we'll dive into it. So this is Matthew 20. We're going to start in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that i am to drink and they said to him we are able he said to them you will drink my cup but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we see there's a lot that happens in this passage. We definitely won't have time to really hit on everything. That I think the Lord really would like to speak to us today. So I encourage you to really take some time on your own to look at this passage. But uh, I just want to point out, first of all, kind of what is the overall thrust of this? What's what's going on? Well, first of all, we see in this first paragraph they're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them there's something that's about to happen to me. I'm about to suffer. I'm about to be flogged. I'm about to be killed, crucified. And then we see this interesting little story happen where the sons of Zebedee, who are those? James and John. They get mommy to come along and go to Jesus and make a request to him. And they ask him, can we, when you reign in your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand, your left hand? And Jesus gives him an interesting response and he bases it all around this idea of a cup. My cup. And we're going to get into that, but then later, you know, all the disciples, they get angry at this, you know, they kind of wish that they had thought of the idea first, but kind of glad that, uh, you know, James and John got shot down, and Jesus calls them all together, and he gives them principles for how his kingdom is to operate. It's not going to be like the kingdom of the Gentiles. It's not going to be like the nations. It's going to be completely different, and I'm going to be your example for how this kingdom will operate. I will be your ultimate example. This will be a kingdom of servants. A kingdom of servants. Man, if we could just get this idea, think about how different everything would be. Think about how different everything would be. Jesus, he he points in verse 25 to the way that the nations lead, the way that they exercise authority. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them? What is he pointing to? He's pointing to what we typically see in authority and leadership, right? We typically see someone who is domineering in their authority. Is that right? Has anybody ever seen that? Maybe at your workplace, right? Your boss who is domineering, your supervisor who thinks that they're, you know, some big, some hot stuff, Right? the the next big thing at the company, right? And they're just domineering. We see this throughout history in leaders, presidents, kings, monarchs who have exercised authority over the people. And what does a domineering leader do? They say, do what I want you to do or else. Do what I want you to do or else there will be consequences. There will be punishment. That's the way leadership oftentimes works, and has worked throughout history, right? And so, we see this with politicians. Unfortunately, we see this a lot closer to home in the church, don't we? We see this with pastors who have been abusive to their people, who have not cared for the sheep, but instead have abused them. Physically, emotionally, right? They have abused the sheep. They have not cared for the sheep. You're supposed to take care of the sheep, but instead you're beating the sheep. We see this with people like Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a a big time church, very successful, but through his abuse, his domineering spirit, the church was destroyed. We see this all over the place. And Jesus is saying, it's not going to be like that in my kingdom. What's interesting is this, this kind of also relates to another kind of leadership that we can see, a self-interested leadership, right? Not just domineering, but self-interested. A self-interested leader, he doesn't ask, what are the needs of my people? He says, instead he looks at the people and he says, how can you fulfill my need? What can you do for me, is what he asks. How can you fulfill my cravings, my desires, my pleasures, How can you satisfy me? Let me have my will through you. And we see this with all kinds of abuses. And we see this with denominations, churches, Southern Baptist Convention, the Roman Catholic Church, sexual abuse scandals galore all over the place. Don't we? That's a self-interested leader. That's a leader who would devour the sheep instead of feed the sheep. And we see this all over the place. This is not a leader who would say, I want to serve my people. But I'd say, I will devour them to fill my belly. We see this with people like Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias, who so many people looked up to, the great Christian apologist, who when he died, all this stuff was uncovered, exposed about him. How he had been using women, manipulating them. Terrible. Terrible. If we could just get this one thing, if we could just get what it means to be a servant like Christ in the church, to not be about getting what we want, to not get about, be about getting our own desires fulfilled, wouldn't that just change the landscape of the church? We'd see husbands and fathers acting differently, wouldn't we? Instead of husbands and fathers who are domineering over the children, over their wife, we would see them lay down themselves. It's not about me, what I want. It's about leading my wife and my kids to Christ. It's about leading them to His will. It's about building them up into the image of Christ. That's what we see. We see a bunch of, we see a lot of husbands and fathers who treat their, their wife and their kids like sheep to be abused and to be devoured. And that's why we see a lot of pushback today, don't we? And all these abuses, right? We have a big movement in our culture that is pushing against abuses, and it's going the opposite direction. It's swinging the other side of the pendulum. We see some people who respond with irresponsibility on the one hand, right? I'm not going to take leadership. I'm not going to take authority. I'm not the leader. They don't step up and do what they are called to. That's why we have leaders, we have pastors, we have husbands and fathers who are passive and don't accomplish anything. They don't do anything for their wife. They don't lead her to Christ. They don't do anything for their kids. They don't lead them to Christ. They go to work, drop them off at the school and they're just about getting their needs fulfilled. At the very least, you see this with a single guy who's watching YouTube, Netflix, playing video games, doesn't want to take responsibility, just fills himself with these things instead of doing, taking responsibility for another human being. But you also see this with the person who has a job, who works out, and looks pretty good, but still isn't taking responsibility to care for others. You know, this is kind of a, a side note, a call from men. Men, we're called to lead. We're called to lead. We're called to lead at the very least our wives and our children. We cannot be passive like our father Adam. His passivity led to a world of sin. It destroyed all of his offspring. It destroyed all of his children. We cannot be passive. We have to take ownership we have to realize that the responsibility lies on us. It doesn't rely on our, on our wife. It relies on us. We have to take ownership of our family. How are we setting the culture for our families? Are we setting the culture, or are we just letting it set itself? Because if it sets itself, that's a world of trouble. We actually have to take authority and responsibility. So... That is, that's kind of a reaction that has come, right? You have a a son who had a father who's domineering, who was a jerk, right? And he says, I'm not gonna be like my dad. He expected so much out of me. I'm not gonna be like that with my kids or my wife. And so then he goes the opposite direction. He becomes irresponsible. He becomes a do-nothing father, a do-nothing husband. You also see this with pastors who uh, they do not, they're not willing to strain with godly effort for the shepherding of the sheep. They're more about conserving their energy than about actually serving the needs of the sheep, than putting the hours and putting the work in to minister to the people. Okay? So this is how that affects the church. You also see this with uh, the other extreme is a revolutionary spirit. Right? We see the abuses of leadership and we say, no more leadership. We see the abuses of authority and we say, no more authority. No more kings. No more leaders. No more bosses. Let's all be equal. That's the way to do it. No more fathers and husbands. No more pastors, clergy. How about have your own religion How about have your own church? You are the priest of your own religion. You're the pastor of your own religion. No more fathers. We don't need more abusive men. We only need mothers. Let's just have mothers. No more men, for that matter. Let's castrate them and make them women. That's what our culture says. And so this revolutionary spirit, it sees the abuses, and it responds by saying, let's equalize through deconstruction. So... I point that out to say, you know, Jesus says, you know what the Gentiles do. You know what the Gentiles do. Church, you know what the people do. You know what our culture does. It falls into one of these four categories, essentially. Either you see domineering leaders. I think we saw this more in the past, in the last generation. Domineering leaders, self-interested leaders. You still see that today. But then you see this other side, irresponsible leaders and revolutionary, you know, revolutionizing leadership. So, and just, so, just to make this clear, this isn't just for people who want leadership, right? Just to make that clear. Because what we're talking about is how the kingdom works through servanthood. Servanthood. It is necessary that if you are to be a leader in any sense, you must be a servant more than anyone But even if you are not a leader, if you are in the kingdom of God, you are called to follow the example of Christ and to be a servant. We're all called to serve in one way or another. Amen? So this is for all of us, to see the example of Christ, to learn from it, to look at what the nations do, the Gentiles, the people around us, and say, that's not what Christ has called us to. It will be different among you. And that's what he says, it shall not be so among you. It'll be different. Now, how does that look different? How does it look? Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Alexa's tracking with me. So um, so how does that look? Well, we see it, we first see it with the way that the sons of Zebedee, James and John and mommy come along. They come to Jesus and they ask him this question in verse 21. Mom says, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Let them sit in the places of authority in your kingdom. You are to be king of this kingdom. I know that much. Let them sit either side of you. Let them be number one and number two, your right hand and your left hand man. Now that seems like an okay question, but what does Jesus say? He says, you do not know what you are asking. You have no clue what you're even asking for. And what does he mean when he he says that? What does he know that she doesn't know about her two sons? What it would mean for them to sit either side of him? He, He says it right there. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? that I am to drink. You see, he doesn't say, no, that's not for you. He says, in order to sit where you're wanting to sit, to have that place in my kingdom, there's a cup you have to drink. There's a cup that I'm going to drink. It's my cup. Are you able to drink it? Are you able to drink the cup? Well, what is... What is that cup? The cup is the cup of suffering. It's the cup of of a suffering servant, more specifically. Of a long-suffering servant. You see this in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26. He's there and he's praying to his Father about what is about to happen. The hour has come. And he says in verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Shortly later, he finds the disciples sleeping, and he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he goes back to pray, And he says in verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he prays this a third time. You have no idea what you're asking for. I'm even praying that this cup would pass from me. Even Christ is looking at the cup and he sees it for what it is. It is a cup of suffering It is a cup marred and scarred with blood. It's a cup crowned with thorns. And he's he's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. But they're saying, we're able. We are able to drink the cup. How arrogant. They don't even know what they're asking for. And he says, Father, let this cup pass, but... They say, we are able to drink the cup. We're able. Now, what does Jesus respond to them in verse 23? His response really surprises me. It may surprise you. He says, you will drink my cup. You will drink my cup. What's he doing there? Is he punishing them? He says, oh, okay. Well, you don't even know what you're drinking. you saying you're able? All right, well, you're going to get it. No, that's not what's happening here. He says, you will drink my cup. You will drink the cup of my suffering. Now, I want to get into what that means, but first I want to just point out what did this actually mean for James and John, right? These brothers. How did this play out for them? Well, James, we see him in Acts 12, verse 2, and he is the first Martyr among the apostles, the first one martyred among the apostles. Herod the king, he sees what the Christians are doing, and he starts a great persecution, and he starts with James, and he dies with a bloody, violent death. As James was serving the church in Jerusalem, he was put to death. And so a great persecution rang out. Peter was put into prison, the Christians scattered. And so it started with James having a bloody, violent martyrdom. How did it happen for John? What did the cup of suffering look like for him to drink? Well, John was almost the exact opposite. He was the last apostle to die. James and John function as bookends to the deaths of the apostles. James dies first, John dies last, and John, quite different than James or all the other other apostles died through martyrdom, crucified, thrown to lions. But John, he died of natural causes. He died of old age, the one who died of old age. Now, that wasn't for want of trying. They put him in a boiling vat of oil in order to kill him. He had persecution. Miraculously, he was saved. He did not die from being boiled in oil. And so, instead, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. So what did the cup of suffering look like for John? It looked like long, long suffering. Long suffering. He saw all of his friends, all of the apostles, murdered one by one. His disciples murdered, thrown into coliseums to be eaten and devoured by wild animals, put as human torches. And it looked like Exile. For him. It looked like persecution. Do you see how the cup of suffering, the cup of a suffering servant, looked so different for James and John? One died in a quick, violent death, the other suffered long, long, long and died of natural causes. So we each bear our cup differently, but we do it enduring the suffering for the sake of others to serve. And how much did they serve, James and John and all the apostles? They served the church so much. John, on the island of Patmos, he wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation. He had his revelation, and he gave us hope for the future through that book. Amen? So the cup of suffering, the cup of a suffering servant, of a long-suffering servant, it looked different for them. But he says, you will drink my cup. They drank it. And I wonder, is this just for James and John? Is it just for James and John? No, clearly, all the Christians were drinking this cup. All of the Christians were drinking this cup. And he says, look look at this next part, though. He says, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You see, he doesn't say, no, I reject your request. No, you will not sit by me in my kingdom. That's not for you. You won't have it. He doesn't say that. His answer is, that's for my Father to give, and he will give it to whom he will give. I submit to the authority of my Father, the will of my Father, and he will give that to whom he gives it. And so who does he give it to? Who gets to sit at the right hand of Christ? Who gets that privileged place? Is it John the Baptist? He did a lot of great things. He was called the greatest in the kingdom of God at one point. Is it Paul? He was a great guy. Here's some candidates, right? Well, look at Ephesians. And we see who sits. First, we see see how Christ was raised raised to his throne. He was raised up... By the power of God from death and seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father above all dominions and authorities and powers. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. By his, according to the working of his might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Christ has been raised from the dead to be seated by the right hand of the throne of the Father, above all things. Now who sits with him? Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, really starting in verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see, it is the grace of God that we also died with Christ on that cross, that we also are by the power of God raised up from the dead and by that same power seated in the heavenly places, seated with Christ on the throne. Do you understand that, church? We died with him. We are raised with him. If we endure through suffering, we will also reign with him. We will also, re- that's 2 Timothy 2 11. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We reign with Christ. This isn't just restricted to one guy, the best apostle, John the Baptist. We reign with Christ. There are no paupers in the kingdom of God. We reign with Christ. The church reigns with Christ. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of Christ? It is his bride. It is his queen. It is the church of which we are members. Who sits upon the throne of heaven? It is Christ He is the head. We are his body. You are members of this Christ who is seated in the heavenlies. Do you believe that you are one with Christ? Do you identify with him? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. So that Christ may be all in all. Christ is all in all. He is in each one of us. And if if he is here with us, if we are in him and he in us, then we reign with him in the heavenly places. We reign with him. We reign with him. So you see, what Jesus was saying to this, you will drink my cup, this was not a punishment, this was a grace, this was a gift. Because it's through the path of suffering that is the only road that leads to resurrection. That is the only road that leads to glory. Do you realize this, church? Listen to the grace of God in Romans chapter 8. Listen to what it means to be a co-heir with Christ. If Christ is the heir of the kingdom, we are co-heirs. It says this in chapter 8, verse 17. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, there is a provision, provided we suffer with him, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's in Romans chapter 8. That's pointing to the path of the Christian. It's a path of faith. It's a path of persevering faith, steadfast faith that endures. It's the example of Abraham that we had in Romans chapter one or 4, right? We see Abraham being put forward as the example of saving faith. What does saving faith look like? Romans chapter 4, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, he had a promise that he would have a son, Isaac, through Sarah. How could he do it as an old man? How could he do it with a barren wife? But it says this, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong, he waxed in faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, and it was written for our sakes also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead. And so therefore we're justified by faith, and this process of faith continues in chapter five, verse three. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Chapter 5, verse 3, right after saying what saving faith looks like in Abraham, he then introduces suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope against hope. And hope does not disappoint. So you see, if we want to reign with Christ, we must walk the path that he walked. We must die with him. We must be raised with him. We must drink the same cup that he drank, the cup of a suffering, long-suffering servant. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glorified, the hope of glory. What is the glory that we shall receive if we endure? It is to be there with him. To be physically, bodily there with him. No longer just, you know, in this disconnected way where we know it's true, but it's hope. And hope is not completed when it's, hope is completed when it sees the thing, right? Sight is what completes hope. So for now, we hope, but it will be fulfilled, that hope when we endure, when he brings us to heaven, when we are glorified. Do you believe it, church? That is our hope. That is what carries us through this world. That is the difference between us and the world who despairs. They have nothing to hope for after death, but we have a hope, a sure anchor for the soul, a hope of glory that we will be seated with Christ and we will reign and Christ will be all in all. Do you believe it, church? So, it is a blessing. This is exactly what, what Paul said to the Philippians. He was trying to show them, you know, when he wrote Philippians, he was in prison, right? In prison for the sake of the gospel. and He was not ashamed of his shackles. In fact, he gloried in them. He gloried in his shackles because they were the marks of Christ. I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Every flogging that I bear every suffering I endure, I bear the marks of Christ. And he wanted the Philippians to get this like he got it. And so he told them, as they also suffered, that they were being given a grace. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, or no, not 23. Yeah, 23. No, not 23. Where is it? (laughs) Oh yeah, 29. He says, it has been granted to you. It's been granted to you. This is a grace given to you by God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, not merely believe, not merely have faith in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here. That I still have. It's been granted to you, Philippians. He's saying, oh, praise God. I'm not the only one who's bearing, who's getting to drink this cup of suffering so I may be glorified. I see it in you, Philippians. It's also been granted to you. What does Paul say to Timothy? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted living the godly life, the Christ-like life, it means suffering. It means long suffering. It means enduring through suffering. It means serving others through suffering, even when it means suffering. It means for the Philippians... In a world that hated them, that despised them, that hated their message, that hated their gospel, hated their laws, the laws of God, the doctrines of Christ, it meant sharing it anyway for their sake, that some might be saved. It meant serving the world in this way, that even if I become nothing, that Christ could become all, that you could know Christ. Even if in my workplace, if I'm told that I cannot share the gospel, I will share the gospel so I can serve my coworkers the living waters of Christ. Oh, that I could give you living waters. It means even my family, my friends, when they hate the gospel, they don't like it. They say, what do you call me, a sinner? What are you saying? I think I need to repent of sin? Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Just like me, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. You're in need of Christ. Let me give you the bread of Christ. Partake of Christ. It means whatever abuse is hurled to serve anyway. It means that in your family. What kind of ridicule, and what kind of jokes are made, right? That's like the, the bare minimum, Right? that we experience is just getting ridiculed by our family to serve anyway. He calls us to long-suffering service. That's so different than what the world says, isn't it? So different. So Paul, he, he experienced this, like I said, and he wanted this for them. And you see this so clearly in what Paul says He lived what's called the exchanged life, the exchanged life. He surrendered all that he was, everything he was, the good and the bad and the ugly, so that he might obtain Christ. He might have Christ. You see this in Philippians chapter 3. Read it yourself, but I'll just read the end of it, of his thought process. He says that I've counted all things as rubbish, things to be thrown out that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that same power that God exercised in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him in the heavenly places, that I may know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, may know the fellowship of his suffering. Another version puts it, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I'm willing to give up everything for that cup, that precious cup, so ugly and despised. If you remember, I preached uh, the last Sunday of 2021. I preached about um, Babylon. And do you remember that she had a cup also? She had what was the golden cup. Full of all of earth's abominations and filth it was a golden cup beautiful, attractive cup held by an attractive woman saying drink my cup and she says this to the nations drink my cup and they drink and they're drunk upon it and she's saying that to us too drink my cup but Christ is saying something to us drink my cup partake of my cup and it's an ugly cup. It is an ugly cup marred and scarred with blood. Which one do you to take? The golden cup or the bloody cup? The cup of a long-suffering servant, or the cup of the wealthy, the rich, the great of this world, or the great in God's kingdom? Which cup will we partake? That's why he says, "Come out and be separate. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Do not partake of her cup any longer. Partake of my cup." You know, this is this is what I long to have in my own heart. You know, when I'm saying all those things about what it means to be a, a wrong leader, I hope you don't think that uh, I think that I'm beyond that. I see so much of myself in every one of those four leaders that I mention. I can see myself being domineering, self-interested, irresponsible, wanting to do away with authority. But what I want so much for myself is to be like Christ. To be a servant who is willing to suffer for the sake of you. For the sake of the church, his body. And what I want, even more than that, is for you, for you people, for you men of God, for you women of God, to do the same, to be like Christ, to take up the cup of Christ, to serve. That's what I long for you. How that could change our church, how that could change our community, how that could change our world, if we would be like Christ in this way. Do you believe that, church? I want that for you. I pray that for you. I pray that for myself. When you have this heart that longs to see the church glorified, then you're willing to suffer anything for it. Lack of sleep, anxiety, difficulty, distress. That's the the least of what we experience. Maybe someday persecution, oppression, Mocking, false trials, scoffing, beatings, maybe someday death, but to say it's all worth it if the Christ, if Christ's church can be glorified, if I can add one member to Christ's body to be glorified. And that was Paul's, that was Paul's whole attitude, Colossians 1, 24, He rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the body of Christ. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, in my body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Christ suffered on the cross once and for all for sin, but he still suffers through the body of his church so that she may be glorified he still suffers through each one of us as we suffer for the sake of the church. This is Paul's battle cry. This is what led Paul throughout his whole life. At 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will not only spend my money and all my possessions, but I will spend my very self, He says in Philippians chapter 2, I would be a drink offering poured out on the altar of your faith for your sake. Let me be poured out. Let me be nothing. Let me become nothing so that your faith can be built up. Do you have that heart for Christ's church? Do you have that heart for your wife, for your kids? Do you have that heart for your neighbors, for your community? That's the heart that Christ wants us to have, the heart of a suffering, long suffering servant. And Paul, he had this heart all the way through to the end of his life. He said, I've run the race. I've run the race. I can't believe I made it this far. I've run the race. I've endured the test. And he says, he says, this is guiding his life. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for their sake. Whatever it may be, I will endure it for their sake. Do you have the heart? May the Lord give that heart to us, that heart that's willing to endure everything. For the sake of the church. Well, in closing, this example of Christ is put before us, right? <clears throat> this example of Christ, he's going, literally going to the cross to be flogged, mocked, crucified, he is exemplifying for us what it means to suffer for the sake of his body the church what more glorious thing is there than this that is why christ is the greatest in his kingdom is because he became the least that is why he is the greatest in his kingdom because he became a servant of all he became not merely a bond servant but a slave of all and that's why he is the greatest christ he sits with on his knees with a cloth in his hand at our feet washing our feet. He is a servant. He went to the cross and suffered everything for our sake. He says, this music is going to introduce what I'm about to say in a good way. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he exemplifies it. Even as I, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you willing to ransom your life? Are you willing to ransom your life for the people around you? May Christ give us that. May Christ give us that heart that is not guided by selfish ambitions, by conceit, empty, vain conceit that would pursue making ourselves great, Subjecting others to our will, what we want. Seeking to satisfy our own cravings. Being passive and irresponsible. But may Christ give us his heart, his mind. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this same mind. You can have the mind of Christ. The mind of the suffering servant. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do this for us. Heavenly Father, Lord of all, we come to you thankful, with thankful hearts for your word, your example that you've put forth in Christ. He is the greatest authority, the greatest leader. We gladly bow before him. We gladly confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is the Lord to your glory because he is the great servant. Oh, Lord, so minister to your people now. You still serve us. You still serve us even today. Minister to us through the remainder of our time as we worship and put in our hearts this very heart of your Son. Let us willingly drink the cup, even though it is a scary, scary cup. Not our will be done, but yours be done in this church. God, would you just put on our hearts if there are things that we need to sacrifice, ways that we are pursuing our own selfish ambitions, empty conceits, vain things, ways that we are not taking responsible for, responsibility for those under our care or not even caring for anybody else, taking responsibility for anyone. Would you please expose this to us and let it be our heart to serve even when it's painful, God? So let your spirit accomplish this in our church. We all agree in this request, and we give it to you in the name and power and authority of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen.